It happens with some regularity that someone remarks that what I'm doing here on the Nordic Animism channel is not historical. Or that, for instance, the suggestion for a timing of the Aun year has a scarce source material underlying. On the one hand, this is absolutely true. Nordic Animism is not historical LARPing, and it's not supposed to be. On the other hand, the way these suggestions are made are themselves rather historically convoluted. Because exactly what does it mean that something is historical? Well, historical time basically means that X happened at a point of time where there are written sources in the general context. Prehistorical times mean that X happened in a period before there were any written store sources available that could perhaps have documented it. But that is a historical definition, which is not exactly what I think people are aiming at when they're questioning the historicity of uh, Nordic animism. Because obviously, Nordic animism is very much historical in the strict academic sense, for the simple reason that it plays out today, in a time where there are indeed written sources available for future generations to look at. Right? When I see some of the stuff that, for instance, most of the uh, historically Puritan heathens name historical, I regularly think, no, that's not necessarily historical. It might totally even not be source critical enough to comply with historical, if you think academically. If you want to be strictly historical, first of all, pretty much anything is up for debate. Almost any element of heathen religion that you can think of has at some point been claimed that it was just a literary motive that came out of the over-imaginative minds of some Christian medieval writers of those texts where we know these things from, and it has absolutely nothing to do with pre-Christian religion. An extreme example of this is the Danish archaeologist Søren Nanke Krogh, who makes the argument that Vikings were never heathens at all. Scandinavians were Christianized centuries earlier, sometime in the Iron Age, and they became then the followers of some kind of Paulican heretic Christianity. And I don't personally take that suggestion seriously at all. But this is just to say that scholarship questions everything. Right? That is the scholarship game. I've seen people online who create beautiful contemporary neo-paganism, which is totally not in that academic game. And they're dialoguing creatively with the, as usual, extremely slim textual material. But then they smother the word historical all over it and frown on how other people are not historical. And guys, if you want to valorize being historical, First thing you have to do is start admitting that you are not historical. I want to make a meme that says this. I don't know which heathen needs to hear this today, but you are not historical. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that our dialogues cannot work with historical knowledge. Of course not. Like my suggestions for the timing of the octennial celebrations that we today name the Aun year, that is speculative. It is based on a rather slim source material, but it is a fully valid scholarly analysis which happens to be the best suggestion on the market, in my totally not particularly humble opinion. Which is why a lot of people who know their way around Nordic Reckoning and have the shit together 
have come together around saying, cool, that is probably the best suggestion there is. Let's go with that. Like, if you have a clue about cultural scholarship methodology, then try to read the, in my not particularly humble opinion, second best uh, idea about how to time the octennial celebrations, which is the Swedish astronomer Jöran Henriksson's idea how to do it. Now, then you'll see what speculative looks like, right? You could also look at my uh, reading of the Ragnarok as a mythic reflection on, on uh, climate change. And that is based on the Swedish scholar Bo Greslund, who has made the suggestion. And I then combine that with a reading of millinerism. And that is based on the suggestions of Großsteinsland and Preben Meulengracht, uh, who has studied uh, how the poem The Volusbar has emerged. But this is scholarly thinking. But it is not the final truth about the Volusbar and the Ragnarok myth. There are other scholars who certainly disagree with Greslund's climate change reading of that poem. Right. So what I'm doing here is I'm dialoguing with the poem. I'm not going through 19 different scholars who say different things about it. I'm dialoguing with the myth of, of the Ragnarok because the purpose is to bring this mythology into relation with us today. Uh, and that is you know, important to keep a focus on the fact that Nordic animism is today. It's a contemporary thing. From a historical uh, perspective, you know, you can't go back and then find a bounded complex of beliefs and practices that people living with uh, them back in the ages would call Nordic animism, right? You got that, right? The term Nordic animism is a coinage that I made, you know, which is our contemporary model is useful as a lens for us today to access practices of knowledge and land connectedness from different times and different parts of Northern Europe. You can't go back to like 18th century Norway where there's a woman who's giving beer to a hearth fire spirit and then she would articulate in her 18th century Norwegian that I'm a Nordic animist and my practice is called Nordic animism and that implies relation making with fire and I use a runic calendar and I have a raven flag and all that stuff. You know, if you asked her, she would probably say, I do like this because that's how we've always done. That's often actually how animism is expressed. And naming that animism, even naming her practice Nordic, is our contemporary way of giving concepts to bring this traditional knowledge that she's practicing into a frame where we can engage it. Right? And when you look at how I dialogue with his history, then I'm talking about stuff like, traditions of sacred beer brewing or sacred fire and all these things. Let's take a look at my considerations of sacred fire, churn fire, Vigdanelde as an example. When I'm talking about an animist practice such as this, then from a strictly uh, scholarship position, it's important to mark that I'm pulling together examples of such practice and that might give a feeling of historical cultural continuity that might totally not be there. From a history of religion's perspective, it is a little bit too easy to pull examples of sacred fire making from sagas and then smooth directly over into examples from recent folklore like I did in my treatment of sacred fire because from a historical perspective, that could lead you to assume that there's some sort of unbroken tradition between these uh, practices. There might totally be an unbroken tradition, but strictly speaking, 
There might totally not be. We don't know. Um, the sagas might even not represent pre-Christian practices, but just the ideas of pre-Christian religiosities and practices of the, pre the Christian saga writers who were writing in the 1300s, a couple of centuries after Christianity attained status as the most normative religion in Iceland. And there are a number of possible explanations for why exactly these descriptions may have found their way into those texts. That they represent pre-Christian practices is one possible way, but it's not the only one. You know, it's not the only possible uh, description. So, from a, a history of religions perspective, what I'm doing here when I'm dialoguing, for instance here with sacred fire, is that I'm going into different points in history, and then I'm saying, this Norwegian fireplace offering we can see that as an example of our complex of Nordic animism. Heathen sacralizing fire in Njal's saga, we can see that as an example of our complex that is Nordic animism. But it doesn't follow that there's a direct cultural transmission between these two. There might be, but if you want to make a historical thesis about it, then you just can't pose everything that happened in these 800 years between these two data points, that risks becoming extremely bad methodology. I sometimes think that scholars have a tendency to underestimate continuities uh, because sometimes they're there and they can be rather remarkable, but it's still super problematic to just project into an 800 year long dark space. Older generations of scholars sometimes just did that. They just posed a speculative continuity into these kind of dark spaces, and that projection was then sometimes used to postulate essential cultural qualities of the kind that people have tended to use when they were building nationalisms and identitarianisms. And that's the reason why many contemporary scholars are a little bit hypersensitive to even comparing similar things that are far apart, because they, they, they sense they had this cultural expectation uh, that that is uh, linked to nationalism, which it might totally not be. There has also been a period uh, where scholars would hypothesize these sort of cultural structures or structuralisms or uh, union subconscious and these kind of things that are so abstract that you can't check them anyway, so you can use them to say whatever you want. That's also today bad, uh, bad methodology. Then there are scholars today uh, where many would tend to ignore such similarities, pretend that they aren't there or that it's an absolute coincidence that in the medieval Icelandic manuscript material you have what seems to be a shamanic complex where there's vision quests and there are runes and there's Odin and there's winning wisdom for like going into a mountain. And then in 17th century Sweden we seem to have uh, a shamanic complex where there's vision quests, runes, Odin, and there's winning wisdom by going into a mountain, the Orskan complex. Uh, but then many contemporary scholars would say these two things have nothing to do with each other. It's complete coincidence. There's nothing, nothing, no transmission between them. So that's the thinking of many contemporary scholars. Uh, I, I think they're throwing out the child with the bathwater sometimes. Sometimes continuity is definitely there. But also think that animist theory and thinking actually 
offers meaningful scholarly perspectives for how to understand such similarities. If we had holy fire in 10th century Iceland, and they had holy fire in 19th century Norway, then from an animist perspective, we don't really have to assume neither historical continuity or cultural structure or collective subconscious or Volksgeist, or we don't need to back project in methodologically problematic ways. We don't really need all that. We can just observe that these are ways of relating to landscapes uh, and these ways can be different or they can be similar. <clears throat> they can be related or not. They can be in continuity or they can totally not be in continuity. I regularly see remarkable similarities between very recent and very old practices where I distinctly do not think that there's a cultural continuity. I think the Yule Brewing celebration is an example of that. I just think that certain kinds of practice have a tendency to make sense to people who are relating with specific landscapes and specific lightscapes and who eat a lot of wheat, herring and pork carrying branches into communities in springtime, lighting lights at the darkest time of year, or pronouncing what you will accomplish in the coming year, sharing beer to establish connectedness. These are examples of behaviors that are there and we can understand and engage them through the lens of Nordic animism. And I would say that from an animist perspective, uh, you know, that uh, that the similarity probably rests more on relating in similar ways to similar conditions and similar landscapes than they rest on, for instance, cultural tradition. It is the relating that creates cultural inertia more than something deep inside humanity. That would be an animist perspective. For all I know, holy fire could have disappeared and re-emerged or been re-imported from somewhere else seven times in the dark period between the saga uh, sacred fire and early modern Norwegian folklore. Or it could have continued, we can't really know. But in fact, I think that movement of such tradition is very much a possibility because people do tend to adopt things that are perceived as coming from somewhere else and perceived as being powerful. So people could easily have forgotten the churn fire, need fire techniques and then gotten them back from the Lithuanians or something like that. It's very characteristic of how animist knowledge and practice moves. It's knowledge and practice, and it's about relating to, to land, and therefore it moves into spaces where this knowledge and practice is relevant. If growing barley is relevant in a specific environment, then the technology of growing barley will sometimes tend to move there. If growing a specific kind of animacy in fire is relevant in some areas, then it would tend to move there. Perhaps it disappears and then comes back. A beautiful example that we have in Scandinavia recently re-imported the absolutely beautiful and powerful North American All Hallows practices of the Halloween. Now, we used to do very, very similar things here in Northern Europe, even trick-or-treating and carving face-shaped lamps out of beets and these kind of things. These practices disappeared. But now we're doing it again. But we got the forums back from North America. Now, animist culture moves like that. We have been enriched by American culture because American culture has continued developing and practicing something that has been lost 
here. And in a sense, that exact transportation of animist knowledge and practice, it is that which is the purpose of this channel, right? When there is a sacralization of beer or ceremonial handling of fire, then that is just elements that you can see at different points in history, in different contexts, in Nordic seasonal animism. And uh, the objective in, in this channel here is not to map out the exact relations and patterns of transmission, which is often near impossible to say anything about any, anyway. Nordic animism can indeed be practiced as a kind of scholarship. Uh, I even think that uh, broad historical perspectives uh, can, with the right kind of methodological caution, probably be practiced in academically sound ways. But on this channel, uh, I communicate for the objective of creating that kind of dialogue that moves all hallows back into Scandinavia from North America that moves sacred fire back into people's lives, that gives us back our understanding of beer as the vessel of connectedness, and so on and so forth. It is that cultural recovery that is the objective here. So most often I don't go into detail with exactly how element X from this exact historical context may or may not be in exactly what kind of continuity, transmission, reimportation relation to element Y from another exact historical context. Here, the objective is dialoguing with knowledge of the past in order to create contemporary culture. And that is also why I try to focus on the how, by the way. How do we use this today? How do we get nitty-gritty about the practice of relating, playing with kin-making? What practices can make sense between us today? And uh, I think at some point I'll make a, uh, a video where I'm talking a little bit more in general about practicing and how to contribute to practice, how to uh, develop practice and these kind of things. Thanks for listening and see you around.